0: Well, good morning, men. My my passage for this morning and this afternoon is John 21, verses 15 to 17. You may have noticed it already. If not, it's in your um, folder. There's both an outline that I'm going to follow for the two messages. The one um, outline will work for both. And then there's also this sheet there um, that helps to break down those verses in terms of the use of the word love that you may find helpful as well. So those things are there if you want to consult them. So John 21, verses 15 to 17 to start. You're familiar with the setting. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. This is one of my favorite gospel passages and Perhaps I've preached it at your church. I've, I've preached this a number of times when I get asked to preach over the years. So um, if you've heard it before, no apologies because it's such a great text. So, And I, I've, I've, I've uh, modified it a little bit for a pastor's conference. But it's good the way it stands. The, it's a passage with a focus on love to Christ. We heard about love to the brethren This morning, this focuses on love to Christ, a very important topic for all Christians, a very important topic for all human beings, we could say. But there are many valuable lessons here, especially for gospel ministers. So, this is a fitting passage for our topic, especially fitting because here Jesus is, in a sense, commissioning Peter to be a gospel minister, to be an apostle, and He is both demonstrating how to minister to his sheep and training Peter as to how he should minister to his sheep. And it's a good reminder to us that God deals with us the way he does in our lives, whether it's our ministerial lives, family lives, personal lives, and walk with God, in order that we can minister to his sheep. The larger event is that this is Jesus' third resurrection appearance to his disciples. I would have read from the beginning of the chapter, but time is limited. So let me just say a few things about the setting. The time is after the events that we have recorded in chapter 20, where we have Jesus' resurrection and his second upper room appearance. That's mentioned in verse 21 verse 1 or chapter 21 verse 1 after these things jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the sea of tiberias he had appeared the two times in the upper room and now it's after these things he showed he appears at the sea of tiberias another name for the sea of galilee and it mentions that there are seven people there witnesses to this event They are seven of the 12, or now 11. It lists their names in verse 2. John, who is writing, we all understand to be one of the sons of Zebedee, along with his brother James. The occasion is they had an unsuccessful fishing expedition. Verse 3, Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we are going with you also. They went out and immediately got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. So the apostles then met Jesus on the shore, and he served them breakfast. The part we're going to focus on this morning and this afternoon is Jesus' conversation with Peter. I read it, verses 15 to 17. So let's begin with a brief survey of the conversation between Jesus and Peter. First, Jesus, and I'm just following the outline there that you have uh, if you've got it out or if you're looking at it, Jesus um, asked Peter three times if he loves him. Brief survey. I didn't put these points, verse number one through three here. Jesus asked Peter three times if he loves him. Let's look at the first part of each of those verses. So when they had finished, had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, Do you love me more than these? In other words, more than these other men here at the uh, breakfast bar, more than they love you, love me. Verse 16, he said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And then the third time, he said to him the third time, verse 17, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? So Jesus asked three times if he loves him. The second thing is Peter asserts three times that he does love Jesus. Verse 15, he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Verse 16, he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Verse 17, Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. So Peter asserts that he does love Jesus. And then third, Jesus tells Peter three times to feed or tend his flock. Verse 15, he said to him, feed my lambs. Verse 16, he said to him, tend my sheep. Verse 17, Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. So there's a brief survey of the conversation between Jesus and Peter. And now we come secondly, point B there, to some observations regarding the conversation between Jesus and Peter. And the first one, I have three main observations, and the first one, I think I have three main observations, one, two, maybe I miscounted there when I was putting this outline together for Karen. Karen. I was so happy I got it to her, but maybe I had some mistakes. I I see I put three here, but I don't know if I have more than two according to my outline. We'll find out as we go. Two or three main observations. The first one is this. Jesus recalls Peter's denial. What he's doing here is he's looking back to the night before he died And he brings up the subject of Peter's having denied him three times. It's it's not as though Jesus and Peter had not had any interaction about Peter's denial before this time on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. They had had some interaction, we could say, about it when Jesus predicted that Peter would deny him and Peter protested that he would not. That was the beginning of it. Then right when Peter denied Jesus the third time, Jesus, we're told in the scripture, looked at him. Luke 22, 61. When the rooster crowed, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. It was not verbal interaction, but it was some interaction about that instance. And then when Jesus appeared to the gathered disciples the evening of the day on which he rose... He spoke words that were certainly calculated to comfort all the disciples who had deserted him. What were the first words out of his mouth? Peace be with you. But Jesus knows that he needs to address this subject once more and he needs to direct Peter address Peter very directly about it. So let's notice some things regarding this conversation that lead us to conclude that Jesus is, in fact, recalling the instance of Peter's denial. Three things. Here are three things, at least anyway, I think. The first one is this. Jesus begins with a question that compares Peter's love with that of all the rest of the disciples. Notice verse 15a. He says to him, Simon, son of Jonah... Do you love me more than these? So that, that takes us back to when Jesus told Peter he would deny him, because here was Peter's response in Mark fourteen twenty nine. Even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. So in other words, he's saying, remember your words to me, Peter? Do you love me more than these, more than all the rest? The second thing, Jesus questions Peter three times. Pretty obvious. Hendrickson writes this, three times Peter had denied his master, back in chapter 18, verse 17, verse 25, and verse 27, three times he must now own him as his Lord whom he loves. Then the third thing, Jesus brings the conversation to the point of emotional intensity. Notice the beginning of verse 17 there. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And then we read, Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he's, he's, he starts to argue, a little mildly, but he's, he's arguing with Jesus a little bit. So, so consider how that calls to mind the circumstances surrounding his denial of the Lord Jesus. Mainly that that was a time of emotional intensity. Remember how when Peter asserted that he would not deny Jesus. He used very strong words. Matthew 26:35. Peter said to Jesus, "Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you." Luke 22:33. But he said to him, "Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death." John 13:37. Peter said to Jesus, "Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you." So in that way, he's recalling that time. It was a time of emotional intensity. Or think of Peter's denial itself. He wasn't just matter-of-factly denying Jesus. Listen to his words in Matthew 26, 74. Then he began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. Luke 22, verse 60. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are saying. And then, of course, think of Peter's grief when he had denied Jesus. Talk about emotional intensity, Luke twenty-two, sixty-two. 62. Remember, Jesus looked at him, and we read, So Peter went out and wept bitterly. So there's Jesus is recalling Peter's denial. Second observation here, Jesus is humbling Peter. He humbles and restores Peter. That's what we see here. First of all, he, he humbles him. <clears throat> Jesus humbles Peter. The second thing. He brings Peter low. He lays Peter in the dust. Notice three ways that he does this. First, and this is noting again what we just saw he calls attention to Peter's grievous sin again my point there was that he was just uh, just making the connection between the incidents here my point is this in doing this Jesus knew that he was doing something that was humiliating for Peter sometimes people do this sinfully don't they They bring up, maybe in a conversation with you, some sin that you had committed against them in the past. Probably never happens in your marriage, but it could happen anywhere in life. Uh, Not that you never do it either, but the point is sometimes people do it sinfully. You've dealt with that sin. There's no reason for it to be brought into this conversation or that. I'm not of the conviction that um, past sins should never be brought up to people even though they were previously forgiven if there's a good teaching reason to do it i want you to bring up my past sins if there's a good teaching reason in which you can help me but sometimes people do it sinfully but whether they're doing it in a completely for a completely unrighteous reason or for a good reason when your past sins are brought up it is very deflating it is very humbling He calls attention to that grievous sin again. Secondly, he's humbling him in this way, in that he puts the question to him three times. Even if Peter's sin had not been the backdrop for this conversation, it's always humbling to have your faith, your love, your sincerity questioned. And I believe that's part of the reason for Peter's grief here. For one thing, when Jesus asked him the third time, that recalled his denial. If he hadn't gotten it up to that point, what Jesus was doing. But second, Jesus worded the questionly different question differently each time, and we'll get to that in a moment. And then also, the very fact that his profession of love to Christ. Is in effect called into question, that is very humbling. Imagine you're at a wedding, the bridegroom, when the minister is ready to speak some words to the bride, says to the to the to the minister, ask the bride, I know she just said I do, but ask her again do you promise? And she says, well, yeah, I do. And then he looks at the minister again and says, ask her again. And then in a third time, she probably wouldn't still be standing there by the third time. But that's what Jesus does. He said to him the third time, do you love me? So He's humbling him by putting the question to him three times. And then he words his question differently each time. And you can look at that sheet if you have it. Um, it, It'll be a lot easier to understand this if you're familiar with Greek. But I I wrote it out so that, one, it'll be helpful even if you don't know Greek or know it well. And two, uh, just to see it laid out this way, I think, in that little table at the end, number one, number two, number three makes it easier to see exactly what's going on here. So Jesus asks the first two times using the verb agapō or literally here it's agapas the agape word, the verb form of it. And then Peter answers the first two times with the word philō, I love you, I love. And then the third time Jesus doesn't ask with Agapo. He asked, Felice, do you love me? Using the same verb Peter used, and then Peter answers the same way. And I think there's good reason for the choice of verbs. I don't want to be dogmatic about what I'm saying. I don't want to make too much of this, but I hope I can demonstrate that what I, that what I say about these verbs is consistent with everything else we see in the text. And I think it's helpful, and it helps to explain to you anyway how I understand Peter, that Peter is not reticent to profess his love to Christ. He's professing it in the strongest way he can. That's how I understand it. And that's how I'm going to preach the text when I get to the application. And I think this helps to show that that's consistent. I worried a little bit when Gord began speaking about agape love last night. Not that he was going to say exactly what I'm going to say. I would welcome that because we learn that way when it gets repeated to us. I was worried he was going to say anything that contradicted what I was going to say. I don't think anything he said will contradict what I'm going to say. I'm following in what I say B.B. Warfield. He has an article in volume two of his works called The Terminology of Love in the New Testament. I read it many years ago back when I was preaching through this text. Uh, in minneapolis and it was very convincing to me and i'm going to try just to summarize what he said i never have been able to accept the argument that because of the use of the word agape the new testament is talking about a higher form of love i look at it more like along the lines of what gord said yesterday it's the main word used for love in the new testament If anything, that's what gives it a more significant meaning. But I really follow um, um, Warfield here. I don't say that the word agape, as a Greek word, is necessarily referring to a higher love. I don't agree. For a while, I agreed with Carson, I think, in his commentary, if I remember right. He said, well, the variation here by John is just for stylistic purposes. He didn't want to keep saying the same word over and you see variations in Greek words that John uses here and there, just like we don't want to keep saying the same word over again in a sentence or a paragraph. I don't agree with that. I'm going to summarize Warfield's point now. He basically said this. Prior to the time of Jesus, there were four primary Greek words for love. He said all of them could be used interchangeably. They could refer to what we might call the highest forms of love. But now I just want to focus on the two words that we find here. Agapo, I love, and phileo, or philo, I love. Notice these two things. First of all, we're going to notice these words both used regarding Jesus and his love for John, son of Zebedee. All right? So chapter 13, verse 23. John 13:23 <clears throat> Says now there was leaning on Jesus bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved So he loved John And John liked to call himself the one Jesus loved He didn't like to use his name and draw attention to himself but he loved to call himself the disciple Jesus loved And so he used that word agapo. And then chapter 20 and verse 2, we read this regarding Mary Magdalene. After Jesus arose, then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Now this was John's choice to use that word, right? So if, John, if it was a higher form of love, I mean, has John been demoted? Or was he trying to tell us that? No, he speaks with, this time with the word phili, ephili. He loved, Jesus loved him. And then also, and I think this is even more instructive to us, regarding the Father and the Son and their love for one another. Notice two texts back in John's gospel. John 3.35. John 3.35, where it says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. There it's the agape word, the Father loves Agapa, the Son, and has given all things into his hand. Now go over to 5.20, chapter 5, and verse 20. It says, for the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself does and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. Here when it says, for the father loves the son, it's phileo, phili. The father loves the son. So in other words, both words are used. We could say they're used interchangeably. I say it's most instructive to us because it, it tells us both about Both of those words refer to the father's love for the son. Do I have to say it? The highest love imaginable. So agape is the word generally used for love in the New Testament. Warfield's observation is this. When phileo is used, it does not denote an inferior kind of love. He says it is generally used in order to bring out a certain aspect of love. It's the word, he argues, and I agree with him, it's the word used to bring out the elements of intimacy and affection in love. I mean, even as Gord was explaining it yesterday, uh, we could argue perhaps that agape love or, I'll just say, when the word agape is used, and we think of, well, I like to say it this way, when we think of Christian love, in its essence, it is a principled love. As he said, it's the kind of love that causes you to push through and keep loving in the face of obstinacy, obstacles, um, love that, your love being unrequited. You keep pressing on. Christian love is a principled love. But he says when you want to bring out the, the elements of intimacy and affection, you use phileo. In other words, it's not a cheaper kind of love. It's just emphasizing a different aspect of love. Think of it this way. In the New Testament, phileo is sometimes translated kiss. And that is its meaning in modern Greek. So with these distinctions in mind, let's walk through the text. Verse 15, Jesus asked Peter if his love, we could say his esteem for him, his commitment to him, he asks if his love for him outstrips that of the rest of the apostles, as he himself had asserted before. So when Jesus asked him that question in that way, there we could say is the first knife to the chest of peter and peter answers remember if it's not a lesser kind of love so peter's answer is not well lord i i I have to be honest i know my own heart i can't say i love you aga but i can say i love you in this lesser way phileo that's not what peter is saying here he's saying i love you lord So he's he's answering that he does indeed love Jesus. And notice, he doesn't touch the comparison. He gets it now. All right, If you love greatly Peter, you don't love more than everybody else. And he uses this different word, which I'm going to argue, based on Warfield's observations, is even a stronger statement that he's making. And then also he asserts that the Lord knows that he loves him. Or as Peter would assume, he ought to know that I love him. And then verse 16. Jesus leaves out the others now from the picture. He asks Peter if he really does love him in a sense. Isn't that what you're doing when you ask somebody a second time? Like the minister and the, and the, and the bride, right? Do you really love me? Kind of like some people who say, are you sure? I, I believe that's not the way to deal with people generally. We should assume their yes is going to be yes and their no will be no. We should love them by believing all things, especially the words that come out of their mouths. But are you sure? Like I say, generally that's not the way to deal with people, but Jesus had an excellent reason for dealing with Peter the way he was dealing with him here today. There's the second knife. And Peter answers with the same words, probably with some emphasis, probably with a beginning of grief. And notice what is probably the significance of the specific words that are used here. Remember, Peter's answer is not, No, but I do at least love you or like you, to make it sound a little bit less. That's not his answer. Peter is answering, Yes, I do love you. In fact, I like you. In other words, I want to be around you. You're my favorite person. I think that's what he's saying there with this answer this way. As if he were saying, not only do I love you, I like you. He's answering yes. Not only in the sense of the other question he had where Jesus said, are you going to turn away from me too? And Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? In other words, we don't have anyone else to go to. Kind of like a spouse might say after many years of marriage. Well, yeah, I love you. I mean, where else am I going to go? I'm staying with you. But it's an answer that says, I wouldn't go to anyone else if I could. I love you. As if he were answering the question of Tevye in Fiddler on the Roof. Remember, he, he wanted his wife to say, it's not just I'm committed to continue making your meals and washing your clothes for the next 20 years if the Lord grants them to us. I want to do it. And that's the significance, I think, of these words here, if there's any significance to the difference in the words. And then verse 17, here's the third knife that comes to Peter from Jesus. Okay, Peter, you've said you love me in this intense, intimate uh, passionate way, you love me, phileo. So Jesus uses his word. Do you? Jesus says. And obviously it's not that Jesus doubts Peter. It's not that he's bludgeoning him with his sin. But Jesus has to deal with Peter. Jesus knows that this will do Peter good. It will do him good to face his sin in a way that he has not yet done. Though he wept bitterly, though he felt terrible about it, though he was repentant, it will do him good to face his sin in a way that he had not yet. It will do him good to feel it as he speaks with Jesus. It will do him good to come face to face with the fact that it was serious sin. It was against his beloved that Jesus knew and felt in his own soul how bad it was. And to know that Jesus really does still love him. And that he is really fully forgiven for his sin. And Peter, obviously, is cut to the heart. He is grieved. And still, knowing his sin and knowing that Jesus does know all things, as he says to him, he confesses that he loves Jesus and that he's convinced that Jesus knows it. So that's Jesus humbling Peter in these first three ways, calling attention to his sin again, putting the question to him three times, asking it differently each time, and then fourth, he's still humbling him in this point. He assigns Peter a menial task. So Peter, as we all know, Peter was interested in doing great things. He was interested in being the greatest apostle. He was interested in fighting for Jesus with a sword if necessary. Cutting off people's ears if necessary. He was interested in doing something great like dying for Jesus. I mean, he pulled out a sword in the midst of the Roman soldiers, right? So, Peter wants great things. Jesus has a job for him. Feeding the sheep. the The calling of shepherd, as you know, was a very lowly calling in Israel, even a despised calling. We think about how Jesus elevated the shepherds on the night that he was born by having the angels come and announce his birth to them. They were a despised lot. And Jesus tells Peter here in this passage that he will find his identity not in proving that he is better or bolder or stronger than anyone else, his identity will be found in taking the lowest calling, in a sense, and in giving himself sacrificially for the service of others. Think of um, Matthew 18 at the beginning of the passage, and you have that parable, one of the instances of the parable of the lost sheep. And I think in Luke 15, the parable is about evangelism. But I think in um, Matthew 18, it's about pastoring and dealing with sheep because it's the sheep represent my little ones in that passage, not the, the sinners that it represents in Luke 15. And, and Jesus' point is, you have to be like a good shepherd that, when, we heard it yesterday, when one of your sheep turns around and kicks you in the mouth, and runs off. After all you've done for that sheep, you should have that same disposition as you would have for going after a lost sinner in evangelism, and be willing to humble yourself and go after him or her. Or think of Peter's words at the beginning of 1 Peter 5, not as being lords. So Jesus is telling Peter that's how he's going to find his identity, being a shepherd. So in these four ways, he humbles Peter. And then we want to notice next that Jesus restores Peter. Jesus restores Peter. Now oh, that's interesting. So I modified my outline um, between the time I gave Karen the outline and the time I think I finished my notes for my sermon. So that's how that, that explains my problem there. So the third thing in my heading then is this. I... I had my heading, now it it, it reads this way in my notes. Point B, some observations. Number one, Jesus recalls Peter's denial. Point two, Jesus both humbles and restores Peter. And then I have small letter A through D, those four points. And now number three, Jesus restores Peter. So here's Jesus restoring Peter. Number one, though he puts the question to him three times, Jesus does not deny that Peter loves him. In that way, he's restoring him. He may have been challenging Peter. He was. But he was not saying every time he asked the question, no, you don't, Peter. No, you don't. He wasn't saying that. The way people often do, as I said earlier, when they have been sinned against. Someone comes, someone says, I should have said this right away. I didn't. I was mistreating you. I was giving you the cold shoulder. I should have said it right away. I sinned against you. Please forgive me. And someone said, oh, you're not really sorry. Jesus was not doing that. But he had a purpose. He wasn't denying, though, that Peter loves him. Second, Jesus is eliciting, I believe, a profession of love from Peter. An earnest and sincere profession at that. He almost deals with him the way he was dealing with a Syrophoenician woman. I mean, Jesus knew right off the bat how great that lady's faith was. But what was he doing? He was drawing the profession of faith out from her, and in that way, strengthening her faith and teaching her about faith and about her faith, so that at the end he said, Great is your faith. As if Jesus was doing this to draw out the expression of Peter's love, to help Peter get to the point he needed to be, to be a shepherd of his sheep. And in a sense, to say, Great is your love. So the third thing then, Jesus commissions Peter. And this is another way that he's restoring him. He had given him a commission already along with the 12. But here he's removing any lingering doubts in Peter's mind. Because Peter might think, but me? You want me to feed the sheep? You want me to go out with these other 10 men? So he brings Peter's sin in this conversation here. He brings his sin into direct connection with his calling to be an apostle. Think of it this way. Someone's being called to be a pastor. I mean, just because he has a grip on what it is to be a spokesperson for God, a leader in the church of Christ, a shepherd of Christ's sheep, he has a sense of the magnitude of, of his calling, the weight of responsibility, and he's already in fear and trembling. But now let's say a man is coming to that point. He's being called into the office of the ministry. He's got some sins in his past life. The men who are laying hands on him know about it. Some of the people of God might know about them, but he's worried about it. He's wondering, what if all these people... Ended up hearing what I used to do before I was a Christian. Or maybe what my younger Christian life was like. And he wonders, what if they knew this about my past? The point here is this. Jesus does know it. He knows the worst about Peter. He's bringing the worst about Peter into conjunction with his telling him, I want you to feed my sheep, Peter. He does know it. And he's saying, yes, I want you to take up this calling as an apostle and a preacher so jesus recalls peter's denial jesus humbles peter jesus restores peter now let's just conclude with some lessons from the conversation between jesus and peter Uh, maybe we'll just have time for the first lesson that's where my plan was if not i think i have my notes here with me for the Getting on to the next one. But here's, here's the first lesson from this conversation between Jesus and Peter, and it's this Love to Christ is everything. It is everything. <clears throat> we could say that that's the most basic truth of the gospel, it's the most basic truth of the Christian life. That's how the great commandment is stated You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength and mind think of 1 corinthians 13 if you have all those other good things paul talks about boldness and the willingness to lay down your life as a martyr but you have not love you have nothing if that's true about love for the brethren which 1 corinthians 13 is about how much more regarding love for our savior of all the things that jesus could have said to peter On this morning, after breakfast, he says, Do you love me? He asks it because it is a very searching question and it is a very telling question. He asks it because, from a moral standpoint, it is the first principle of walking with God. He asks it because, from a practical standpoint, Love for Christ is the vital source of motivation and of energy for a gospel minister. Listen to George Hutchison in his commentary on this passage. He says, without love for Christ, it is impossible to endure the much toil that they will have. That is gospel ministers. And without love for Christ, it is impossible to endure the many blasts Ministers will meet with in their calling, whether from without, outside the church, or even from within the flock of God. So, my brethren, do you love Christ? Not, do you know theology? Not, have you done a lot for God, and are you willing to do more? Not do you keep all the commandments. I'm not saying none of these things is insignificant. I'm not saying any of these things is insignificant. Not do you talk a lot about the Bible and meditate on God's Word all the time. Not do you have the right theology. That is, are you reformed? No. But this is the primary reason when you think of this in light of what I've just said about the significance of love for Christ, is the primary reason you are sitting here today your love for Christ. Is it love for Christ that makes you tick? Is it love for Christ that makes your heart beat? Is love for Christ everything to you? Is it love for Christ that ultimately determines everything you do, whether in the ministry or outside of the ministry? Is love for Christ the basis for every decision you make in your life? We're all familiar with Jesus' words to the church in Ephesus, Revelation 2, verse 4. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Whatever the exact concern of Jesus Christ, the head of the church, about the Ephesians was, when those words were written by John, at the center of that concern of Christ for the Ephesian church must be the warmth of their commitment to Christ and their affection for Christ. So again, my ministerial brethren, just another set of questions. In Mark 1.35, we read these words about Jesus and his ministry in the early days of his public ministry. In the morning, he rose a long while before daylight and went out and departed to a solitary place. And there he prayed. Many of you have been in the ministry a long time. I'm presuming that many of you have followed your Savior in that pattern for decades, and you've been very faithful in it. You go to a solitary place, whether it's indoors or outdoors, and there you cry out to God every day. Is love for Christ the reason you get up and do that morning by morning? Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5 regarding the motivation for his ministry as an apostle, He said, the love of Christ compels us. Is the love of Christ, brethren, and I know the debate is whether that's subjective or objective. I'm going to ask it this way. Um, Subjectively, love for Christ, so your love toward Christ, is that the reason that you witness, that you preach, that you labor as a pastor? If you're a pastor, you endure hardship, like Paul said to Timothy endure hardship as a good soldier. Is love for Christ the reason you endure hardship? The reason when you go through your first times of hardship in the ministry that you come back the next day, and that if after all the years, you keep enduring hardship. When you're tempted to think, I don't deserve this, I've earned my stripes. Don't these people get it? I love them. Is love for Christ the reason you continue to endure hardship? Is love for Christ the reason you leave the 99 members of the flock to go after the one? Even though you're tempted to think, (laughs) the church won't notice the difference from 100 to 99. And there'll probably be a little bit of a wake of peace after this person departs. But does love for Christ move you to go after the one? Is love for Christ the reason that you seek to speak to and counsel with people, even if they're errant in their theology or um, a bit harsh in the way they just treat anybody? And in particular, the way they're dealing with you right now that is, is love for Christ, the reason you still labor to be patient and humble and gentle. As Paul told Timothy, he should be in 2 Timothy 2, 24 and following. Brethren, I believe, regarding every one of you sitting here, I believe you all love Christ. If you don't, Not only do you not belong in the ministry, if you don't love Christ, you're not a Christian. It's that essential an issue. But for us as pastors, the way we're probably most guilty of having left our first love, to use the language of of, uh, Revelation 2, the way we're probably most guilty is that we don't consciously and deliberately do all that we do for his sake. That we don't always make him the great motive behind all our ministerial labors. Because it's work to keep up love in any relationship. It's that we don't keep him and his presence and the consciousness of his eye upon us at the forefront of our minds as we undertake every part of our ministries. It's that we don't engage in and enjoy more constant and intimate communion with Him. And it's that that we don't take pains to keep the flame of our love to Him burning hot. Every one of us, brethren, in these ways, we fail. But isn't this the great battle of life then? In the midst of all that, to remember Jesus' words and to keep up our love for Christ. So to the degree that you, sitting here today, have lost your first love, to use Jesus' words, confess it to him today and ask the Lord to give you a heart that beats more ardently and constantly for him. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word We thank you for these words of the Lord Jesus. Thank you for the way that he dealt so faithfully with Peter. Teach us the lessons that you have for us in this text today when we come back this afternoon. Take this note of the importance of love for our dear Savior, your Son. Help us to take these things to heart, write it upon our hearts. Father, as we sit under the ministry and consider Jesus as the shepherd of his people, and as our shepherd, cause our love to grow for him throughout this week. And may we all be able to say, whatever we have learned here, that we have been reminded of the importance of love for our Savior. And we pray that you will indeed fan the flame of our love for him into a burning blaze for the glory of his name and for the good of your people the sheep that you've entrusted to our care. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.